Welcome to Create Your Own Light, where we harness our past, we embrace our future, and learn to conquer the roadblocks along the way together. I'm your host, Travis Howes. Let's get on with it. This episode is brought to you by YourWelder.com. YourWelder.com is an online directory of mobile welders. Whether at your home or at your industrial processing plant, we come to you. Our community of mobile welders can repair anything from the neighbor's mailbox that you just backed into or the cat bulldozer sitting on your job site. YourWelder.com is a directory of highly skilled professionals willing to help you on your job site on your timetable. YourWelder.com screens all of their welders using tools like photos from social media apps such as Instagram, Parler, and Facebook, even face-to-face meetups. YourWelder.com was built by actual industry welding experts who actually perform this type of work on a daily basis. And here's the best part. They're veteran-owned and operated. So go check them out at YourWelder.com. And also feel free to check them out on social media where I'll include their links in the show notes. All right, everybody, this is episode 58, and I'm super excited to be here with you today because as you normally listen to my podcast, you know it's usually just my loud mouth. But today, I have a very special friend of mine, one you may know, a man that doesn't need any introduction, Mr. Jeff Foxworthy. How are you, buddy? I'm good. So it's not just one loud mouth today, it's two loud mouths today. You get two, but I'm going <laughs> to be quiet and I'm going to try to let you do most of the talking today. No, no. Th- thank you for what you do with this. You know, there's there's such a need for this. And, uh, you know, we don't always have to be the most qualified for what we do. Uh, I, I've always said, uh, it's like when, when God whispers to us and asks us to do something, the only thing we're capable of doing is saying yes. And we don't have to be the most qualified, but, but that's what you've done with this is you went, crap, there's a need here. And you said yes to it. And, I think that's really cool. Well, it was really hard. I really appreciate that, Jeff, but it was really hard because you know what, we're, you know, we, we talked about this a little, you had me on your serious show, which recently aired and mm-hmm. you're gracious enough to come on today. So thank you for taking the time to do this. And like we talked about on that show, man, um, I told you a little bit about, about what I do and, and we come from the old school. Your school's a little bit older than mine, not calling you old, but yeah. your school's a little <laughs> bit older where we didn't talk about mental health and mental wellness. We didn't ask another man like, Hey buddy, how you doing? Like, no, really? How are you doing? Mm -hmm. It was just expected that the walks of life that we come from, we're just supposed to be able to handle whatever's going on in our life. And absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, I I had to realize I had to get very vulnerable a couple of years ago and start doing this, but it's, it's, it's working. So people are, people are seeing it. So. Well, and, and I think for men, but we got to come to a point where a vulnerable is not a negative term. Uh, I think forever with a man that vulnerable meant weak. Uh, you know, I'm not being as strong as I should be. And you've, uh, you got to change the way you think on that. It's vulnerable is actually, it's, it's being brave. And, you know, I've always told my kids being brave doesn't mean you're not scared. It's, it's being scared and doing it anyway. Uh, and I think that's the same thing with, with the guys being vulnerable. Uh, and I, that even happened to me uh, almost a year ago is, is I've always been a worker. I mean, I've worked since I was 13 years old. I've had a job and, uh, 
I, I know a lot of people probably look at look at a comedian and go, well, hell, that ain't working, but but it is. And and if I go back to when I started 37 years ago, the the comedians that are successful and and not all of them ended up doing stand up. Some of them doing TV. Some of them doing radio. Some of them doing podcasts. But every but the thing they had in common was they they were all workers. And so I found in the middle of pandemic that you know probably the longest I'd ever been on stage been not being on stage since I started was two or three weeks when my when my girls were born. And then all of a sudden I go a year and a half without being on stage. And, you know, I just hit a funk. It was like, crap, what's my purpose? What, you know, what is, what is my identity? This is my gift. This is what I do and I can't do it. And, you know, I finally got to the point and, and I felt a little weak in saying it, but I said to my wife, I'm like, crap, I need to go talk to somebody. I'm, I'm not, I'm not in a good place. And, and I, and when I say that, I don't mean I was thinking about taking my life or it was just, man, I was in a funk. I couldn't get out of. You just felt lost, like in a hole, right? And you're looking for yeah, a rope to climb out. Oh, just, yeah, just yeah. It, it, in a hole. But you know, that's what we mean by being vulnerable is to say to somebody, crap, I'm not in a good spot right now. I need some help. And and, and I'm not in that spot anymore. You know, I went and talked to somebody a couple of times and, and, and reframed my perspective. And, you know, now, now I'm in a good spot again. But that doesn't mean I won't hit, a, hit another hole down the road. But see but what that's, you did. That's the human condition. That's, that's not weakness. That's what it means to be human. That's exactly right. And, you know, I, I have a saying that says courage can't see around corners, but it goes around them anyway. It's okay to be scared, you know, when you were talking yeah, about bravery is. a minute ago. And But stepping up to the plate as a man or as an alpha, even as a woman, as an alpha woman, somebody that thinks that they can shoulder everything, it's okay to say, you know what, I can't carry all of this load myself. I'm going to go talk to somebody. And you can get your head uh, redirected and, and refocused, and it can refocus you, and you can go on to have a beautiful life, you know, you're there's not to say there's not going to be road roadblocks down the road, but at least if you're making an effort, you know, and you're, you're, you're reaching out to somebody and not trying to carry all that weight on your own. That's what I did years ago. And it, and it took me to a horrible place and I, it finally broke me down. I was like, I can't, I cannot carry this weight by myself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I do think that's one of the ways being a comedian ties into this is, is as comedians, what we look for, and it doesn't matter where we are in the country, it's what do you and I have in common? You know, and, I, and I've often argued, you could take somebody on the far left and you could take somebody on the far right. And if you sat them down independently and said, hey, what's important to you? What do you want out of life? Uh, I bet they would agree on 85% of the things. And so as comics, we, that's what we look for. What, what do you and I have in common? Not how are we different? You know, as a society now, we just harp on that 15% that's, that's different. That's right. But you learn as a comic, it doesn't matter whether you're up north or out west or across the ocean. If you're thinking it and you're feeling it, Trust me, a lot of other people are thinking and feeling it too. So you're you're not alone. And I think when we get in those holes, is is that's what we feel is crap. I'm all alone and feeling this way. 
Yeah, definitely. You know, Jeff, you've had so much success with, with, with comedy. And I know like uh, a, a lot of my people that listen to my podcast, they're obviously blue collar fans. I mean, they're, they're hardworking emergency <laughs> services people. Um, I tried not to let the cat out of the bag because I know you carry a busy schedule, but I told a couple people like, hey, I might be interviewing Jeff Foxworth. And they're going crazy over there. So I know that they want to know some things about you and kind of like your career. And, and I'd love to get into talking about that. And I'd love to talk kind of right now, like a, a little bit of the mental health aspect. Can you talk about from, I would like to know when you were on the road, when you were a young comedian, before, before you, um, I guess we call it pop in the business or before you get your real big, your first shot, what were your doubts? Like, what were your concerns when you were in comedy? Was it, man, am I going to do this for the rest of my life running club to club to club, making a couple hundred dollars here and there? You really enjoy what you do, but at what age and what point were you really starting to have doubts about where this could be going for you? I, I'll back up a little bit further in that I, I, you know, I had a real job for, I worked at IBM. I carried a tool bag fixing machines. And mm. the only reason I did that was I was, I, I flunked out of college. Um, but there were so many factors. I'll go back even further. I knew as a kid and my dad left at a young age, I was about eight or nine. Um, but I knew I could make people laugh. I'd save my allowance and I'd buy comedy records. And I kind of knew early, Hey, that's kind of your gift. You can make people laugh. And, uh, and I, I didn't have the money to go away to college doing something I would want to do. So I lived at home. I worked at a grocery store and I went to the nearest college to my house, which was Georgia tech, which was an engineering school, which, I'm not, I don't have an engineer brain, you know, I'm a kid that wants to hunt and fish and, you know, yeah. make laugh. That was me. And so I, I flunked out of school. I was still working at the grocery store. And I think one of my dad's buddies felt bad for me and gave me a job at IBM. And they did a little test to see what you'd be good at. And they said, ah, he's good at fixing stuff. And they handed me a tool bag and I was fixing machines, but I, I, I was miserable. That was not the right job for me and a bunch of guys I worked with used to go down to the local comedy club and they kept coming back to work going Foxworthy you're funnier than those people down there you need to go try this and uh, they entered me in a competition not like an amateur night it was a it was a contest for working comedians is that the great I don't mean to cut you off is that the great southeastern laugh off yeah. punchline yeah 1984 1984. I had no idea what I was doing. So I went the week before and I watched, I watched comics and I went home, wrote five minutes about my family. Well, I went back to Travis and I, the first night on stage, I was a nervous wreck. I won the contest. I had no idea what I was doing. And I, I remember driving home, beating the steering wheel going, holy crap, I won. And I knew, I mean, I knew it a minute and a half into it. I'm like, this is what I want to do. And I quit my job and, and, and I was making good money. I quit my job at IBM. My mother's first question was, are you on the dope? I didn't, whatever the dope is, that was her question. Are you on the dope? And I said, no, I said, I just, I love this. I, I think I can do this. I want to give it a shot because I like, I was contemplating it and, and I was sitting in the break room one day and there were about, you know, I'm, 25 years old and there were 
three or four guys in their 60s sitting in there, and I heard one of them say, I wish I'd I wish I'd have owned a hardware store. I would have loved just owning it. And I thought, I don't want to be sitting in this break room 40 years from now saying, I wish I had whatever, fill in the blank. And I I had no idea that I would make it. I figured I'd, you know, get to do it for a couple of years and I'd come back with my hat in my hand and ask for my job back. And and thankfully I didn't. And I had a work ethic, I guess, you know, I, I worked at it. I had eight years in a row. I did over 500 shows a year because uh, I knew if to be good at whatever you're doing, you got to, I wasn't ever scared to work. Uh, and, you know, I'm one of the, I'm blessed. Somebody asked me years later, they said, knowing what you know now, would you have quit your job? And I said, no, because I had no many, no idea how many people were out there. And what I mean by that is, you know, as I'm sitting there grinding, I could be in Atlanta in a comedy club and look at the pictures on the wall. And I knew where I fell in in that. It was like, all right, I'm not at the top, but I'm in the, you know, I'm sitting I'm here in there somewhere. Yeah, I'm in there somewhere in the top half. Well, then I'd go take a gig in Chicago and I'd look at the wall and there were 500 pictures of people I'd never seen before. (laughs) And then I'd go to Denver and it was 500 pictures I'd never seen before. And so looking back, I'm like, hell, if I'd have known what the odds were against me, I probably wouldn't have done it. So that was a case where ignorance was bliss. You know, yeah. I didn't realize when I was same thing when I was doing comedy. I'd never met a comedian. I didn't. I thought I only thought Eddie Murphy and Richard Pryor and Rodney Dangerfield and yeah. you, and Larry, and all those guys. I was like, well, that's all that's out there. So I'm going to go, <laughs> and I want to. Our, our stories are similar in, in the aspect that I won a comedy competition at the University of uh, Old, uh, excuse me, at Ole Miss down Oxford, and I went there. This, this this old comic told me he goes man you go to you got to go it's for new comedians you can win and if you won you got your first real feature your paid gig man i had five minutes worth of material but i went and somehow won this thing just like you afterwards jeff i thought i made it i walked outside i was like man well i'm going to the top and then uh yeah. that wasn't the case 14 more years 14 years later i was still going up and down the roads wondering like am i sleeping in my car tonight or do i, I want to go to a hotel like this is going to work out. Hell, Trav, I remember I had a gig in Sarasota, Florida, um, and I drove down there. It was and it was a like a little club inside a Holiday Inn, and I got there. Was that McCurdy's? And, uh, I don't think it was McCurdy's, but I got in there, and and the guy said, "Oh, dude, I'm sorry, we went out of business." Like, <laughs> And now I don't have a credit card. I, you know, I'm probably making $200 for the week. And, <laughs> and, and I said, so I guess I can't, can I get a room? Can I spend the night? We're in a holiday. And he goes, no, no, that's only the deal. If you're playing at the club. So I literally went and peed in the bathroom in the lobby, bought a Coca-Cola out of the machine. And I just driven 12 hours and I went back and got in the car and drove back and as I started getting like to Macon, Georgia, I'm, I'm pulling over. I'm digging change out of the seat for gas. <laughs> I mean, not only am I driving 24 straight hours, I don't have enough money for gas. And I get down to the south side of Atlanta 
And I'm the, the red light's on. I'm like, shit, I'm not going to make it home. And I pulled off the interstate and pulled into a gas station. I'm sitting there way before cell phones. I'm trying to figure out, you know, what am I going to do? And a dude I went to high school with pulled in to get gas. And, and I recognized him. And I went over there. And, you know, I said, hey, hey, man, I uh, I left the house without my wallet. This one. I was too embarrassed to tell him. I, yeah. didn't have my I said, I left the house without my wallet. Any chance I borrow five bucks and get some gas? And, He's like, yeah, and gave me five bucks. And, you know, years later, he came to see me. I was playing uh, Chastain Amphitheater, and he came backstage, and I told him that story. I said, so I owe you five bucks. And he said, no, you keep it. It makes a better story this way. So Yeah, uh, I like that. That's good. But, yeah, man, I mean, it was not having any money, thinking, what the hell am I doing? I'm driving up and down the road digging change out beside the sea to buy gasoline. Well, it's those brutal road stories. When you look back years later, they're funny. They're absolutely funny. And I love hearing other comics tell their stories. There's a guy, I don't know if you ever knew Spanky Brown. He was a road comic for 30, 40 years. I mean, he grinded. He, he actually, un unfortunately, he died in, in, the, uh, in the comedy condo the night of his show. They started the show. They're waiting, and Spanky wasn't there, and he died. But Spanky was a mentor to me early on in my career. And he was telling me, he used to tell this joke about how, some of these bookers and, and agencies, as you know, when you're young in your career, they don't put you in the nicest places. They oh, save God. as much money. Oh, he goes, this is a funny, it was a night's in in Columbus, Georgia, and uh, down there at the army base. And he was telling the joke and I, I'm a butcher it. So I'll just paraphrase it. He said that the hotel was so bad. The crack at the bottom of the door was so big when the landscape crew cut the grass in the morning, it blew grass on him in his bed. <laughs> Oh my God. I've stayed in so many awful, awful places. Um, but I was, you know, I was committed to what I was. I knew, I, I knew you weren't going to outwork me. It was yeah. like, I, I, I'll be a nice guy and all, but when the show was over, I was back at that crappy condo with my notebook out. I wasn't chasing waitresses and I, and I wasn't getting jacked up. I was, I was, I was working on it because I knew in my mind that this little comedy boom isn't going to last forever. And I got to be above the cutoff line when the bottom falls out. And that's what people that don't understand comedy, they don't understand a comic is always looking for more work, right? So where you get to go to a normal nine to five job, we don't have that. We're auditioning every single night and you're mm -hmm. hoping when you're in that club, that you do so well, they rebook you immediately six months to a year later. Yeah. And so yeah. We're, we're constantly looking for work. Well, and, and, and that's, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting. If you want to be a musician, you go to music school. If you want to be an actor, you go to acting school. There is no comedy school. The, the only way you learn to be a comic is hanging out with other comics. And then somebody goes, Hey, I did a gig in Cincinnati and it was pretty, and you're like, Hey, can, can I get the name and the number of the, people at that club and, you know, you kind of help each other survive. Um, right. But yeah, you're always looking for the next gig. And so if your mentality and like my, my wife's sister, her husband was in the military. Well, they had the mentality. They wanted to know where a paycheck was coming from every week, you know, and I'm like, well, then you don't need to be a comic cause <laughs> you know, it's, you don't ever, if at any point in my life, if you just said to me, hey, what are you going to be doing in two years? I'd have giggled and gone, the hell, I don't know. 
I mean, I hope I hope I'm still doing this, but I don't know. So you know, so you don't have that. And, and I say you don't. I you know, I've probably crossed that line where if I you know, I I could be doing this in two years if <laughs> if I wanted to, but yeah, for a long time, like hell, I have no idea what I'll be doing in two years. I remember when you'd have to sometimes I would have to book flights, but I wouldn't book them too far out because a lot of times, like you say, clubs would close their doors. And you'd have no heads up and you would just be sitting on some old airline tickets. Right. Yeah. And so you, you waited to make sure. And then as the date gets closer, like you say, there are worker comics out there. And then there's the comics, like you say, they, they go out, they party, they want to chase tail, all that. I was, I was like you, I like to work. I love to work. And I never drank when I was, um, when I was working. Cause I felt like, look, if this were a normal job, I wouldn't be allowed to go in and do it drunk and I'd need to do it sober and do the best that I can. So I never did the alcohol part and I tried to mentor some guys with that, but they didn't get it. And I was like, you know what? I'm nobody's coach. Let me just work on me yeah, yeah. And, and do what I can. But yeah, you would check the website and notice like, Hey, um, why didn't my name all of a sudden disappear on the website and they would bump you and not even tell you. Oh yeah. And you just lost work just like that. So, yeah. So it's, yeah, there, it, it was never a sure thing, but it was, you know, I, I, I'm competitive anyway. I, I don't, I like to work and I'm competitive. And so it, it, I'd always be nice and all, and I'd sit there and smile. But if you were, if you were going up after me, I, I was going to do my time, but, but my goal was to make your life a living hell. Make I wanted, you, I wanted you to get off stage and go to the club owner and go, I'm, I don't want to ever follow him again. Yeah, you mind if I go before Jeff? Is that all right? Yeah. Can I go? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that was that was my mentality. I I want to move up. You know, I won't. I want to be sitting in the chair you're sitting in. So, uh, I wrote about that in my book when I was writing in, and I, I realized I was becoming this perfect feature. I was becoming this perfect setup guy, and I was setting all these people up. And then I was sitting there watching. I was like, man, I'm never going to get to that point if I just keep setting people up. And so that was like, because you were, you were taught, you know, the natural order of comedy, like hosts should be good. Features should be a little bit better. And then obviously the headliner should be the best. And then one day I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to start trying to blow the brakes off of this because if I don't move up, I'm just going to stay stagnant. And then, yeah. then it got infected with that bug and I was like, Phew. so, but you know what, one of the things I had the luxury of, like you were telling the story of Florida, you, you show up at the club. I was talking about, I had a link. I grew up in the digital age. And so you're running around before cell phones. Oh yeah. Internet. So how did it work back then? Like with, with bookers? Cause me, I had the luxury of meeting bookers online and I could email them. And I love hearing the stories from the older comics tell their stories. Like, man, we used to have to mail headshots. I know a guy that told, he would tell me that he would mail bookers postcards of every location he was at just to show the booker how much he was working. Huh. And just crazy yeah, stuff like you that. Would, you would make phone calls and they would say, mail me a headshot and a tape, you know, so send out a ton of VHS tapes. And like, I remember one in Knoxville sending it back and said, no, we don't think you're funny enough. And I'm like, screw you. I'm going to, I'm going to, the day's going to come where yeah, you're going to beg me to come there and I'm not going to do it. Uh, Be honest. But, did the day come where they were like, Hey, Oh, well, you know, I, I don't know. I never, I never asked them again. I was like, all right, I'm on to the next one. But, <laughs> you know, like when I did my book, um, 
the first You Might Be a Redneck book, I got turned down by the first 14 publishers I sent it to. And that was all mailing it in. It wasn't any email or anything. And the 15th one that I took it to called me up and said, hey, this is pretty funny. Can you come in and talk about it? And I went in and he said, yeah, I kind of like this. He said, how does $1,500 sound? And I was scared to answer him because I didn't know if he, I thought he was asking me for $1,500 and I didn't have $1,500. And he goes, no, 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 we'll give you $1,500. i am like, well, hell yeah. If you're going to give me $1,500, we got a deal. We got us a deal. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, like with the redneck jokes, that how did that all start? Did you, well, you sitting around one day and said, I need to come up with all these redneck jokes? Or did you start with one and you and it crushed uh, and you're like, wait a minute. It it, it started because some of the first advice I ever got. And, and in the early days, I knew like I worked with a lot of guys that never got out of the southeast. And I thought, man, the day's going to come when the it's the comedy boom is not as booming and I got to get out of my region. So I'm not one of 2000 comics calling somebody and going, Hey, you've never seen me before, but, and so I kind of made it a point to get out of my comfort zone and go places. And every time I would go to like New York or Chicago or whatever, I'd get guys coming up going, Hey, yo, Foxway, right? Like, I don't want to hurt your freaking feelings, but you got to take some voice lessons and lose that stupid accent you got. And I was, man, I dug my heels in and I'm like, well, hell, where I come from, you have a stupid accent. I'm like, <laughs> I ain't changed the way I talk. A quarter of the people in the country talk like this. And so I was stubborn about that. I drove a pickup truck. I wore blue jeans and boots. You know, I talked about hunting and fishing. And so everywhere I was going and it was good nature, but you'd be sitting around, you know, after the show and, the, and they'd be laughing at me going, Crap, Foxworthy, you're nothing but an old redneck from Georgia. And I kept hearing that. You're nothing but a stinking redneck from Georgia. And one night I was playing in a club in outside Detroit, and they were kidding me after the show because I was talking to it was right at the start of deer hunting season. And I was like, crap, I wish I was in a tree this weekend. And they started on that. You're nothing but a redneck. And the club we were playing in was attached to a bowling alley that had valet parking. And I said, all right, <laughs> y'all don't think y'all have rednecks in Michigan. Come look out the window. People are valet parking at the bowling alley. And hell, Travis, I wasn't smart enough to think it was going to be a hook or anything else. I was just looking for material. And I went back to the hotel that night and I'm like, hell, I know what I am. But apparently a lot of people don't. And I wrote 10 ways how to tell how you might be a redneck. Uh, and I went back the next night to the club and I, and I tried it. And not only were people laughing, they were pointing at each other. And I thought, well, hell, these are easy to write. They're one-liners. One you know, it wasn't like writing a whole bit. It was a line. And I'm like, all right, if I can write 10, can I write 30? If I, I wrote 30, I'm like, can I write 100? And I got to where I had... I don't know, three or 400 of them written down. And I quickly found it wasn't, it wasn't the made up ones that got the big laughs. It was the true ones. Like one of the, one of the first ones was if your front porch collapses and kills more than three dogs, you might be a redneck. Well, that was my uncle Bob in South Carolina. You know, they, you'd pull in his driveway and the bottom of the house would just erupt with dogs running out of it. (laughs) And no azalea bushes. Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> they don't blow and, them down. Just, and, and so 
people say, how'd you come up with those? I'm like, hell, there wasn't any research going on that. It was my family, you know, it was my around. Yeah. And so, but, but it was one liners and we lived in an age still where nobody does one liners. So they were easy to remember. They were easy to retell. You could, you know, you could be in the, at the water cooler at work and tell three of them and get three laughs. And, yeah. um, and, and, and it's funny because I've always kind of thought of myself more as a storyteller, as a comedian, instead of a one-liner guy. But it, it, they were great for the radio because you could sit there and pop off 10 jokes like that. And, oh, and so it did became a hook and it did become a book. I, that The publisher, when, when he said he wanted to do it, I said, how many do you think we'll sell? And he goes, you know what? I bet we sell 5,000 of them. Well, that first book sold like four and a half million copies. But that is so every a- time I saw him after that, I was like, dude, I'm glad you don't know anything more about the book business than I do. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, insane, man. That's such an incredible crazy. story. Yeah. Nobody saw it coming. That, oh man. I'll tell you my favorite one that you told. And I think about this all the time because I got some pretty good looking gals in my family. And every time we get it, get together in an event, I'll start looking around and I start feeling guilty. Go to the you family, go to family reunion to, to find a date. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. One. oh yeah. same with me. Yeah, I'd be sitting there at the family reunion going, now, what cousin is she to me? I mean, is that she ain't first, right? You're she trying to she, justify it like. Yeah, justify right, it. She, second or third, then it was like, well, that might be all right. I mean, she's hot. I met a girl in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, one time I was playing the Funny Bone when that was open. And uh, her last name was House. And uh, she walks up to me and goes, you think we're cousins? And I go, who's your daddy? And she said it, who, what his name was. And then I said, he, he don't sound like one of my uncles. So I think you're far enough down the line. She said, boy, you're retarded. Something's wrong with you. <laughs> That's funny stuff. All right. Let me ask you this then. Um, the, the, the annoying question was, do you have a favorite venue of all times that you played? from big to small the fox theater in atlanta it's where gone with the wind um premiered would that happen would that happen to be the same venue (laughs) hang on a second would that happen to be the same venue where a woman's water broke and she gave birth that is the same venue yeah yeah which to me is kind of like well we i had two shows that night and it was it, it's Fox seats about 4,500 people and it, both shows were sold out and she was on the front row, right in the middle. And, and I mean, it, it, she, Lord, Trevor, she was pregnant. She looked like somebody needed to follow her with a wheelbarrow. <laughs> so, uh, when, and she's sitting right down in front, a front row and about halfway through the show, her water broke. And there, I mean, like she's, you were on stage labor. Oh, I'm right in the middle of a show and they have to get her out of there and, you know, trying to keep this baby in. And, uh, and part of me was thinking, well, you know, as a comic, that's kind of the ultimate compliment is have somebody, I made somebody's water break and they're going into labor from laughing so hard. But my second thought was the show after this is also sold out. And that is somebody's seat. Oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> did you let the second show know? 
<laughs> I don't think so. Cause you know, cause you know, somewhere at that moment, somebody was at dinner going, man, I can't believe we got front row seats for this. They, they were all excited, not knowing what they're going to be sitting in a little while later. So since we just talked about that, let me ask you this. Do you remember, do you remember a show where a guy died in Canada in a tunnel? Yeah. But they brought him back to life. Yeah. And, and I was working. You're with curious Larry. how I know all this, don't you? Yeah. We know well, the other night I, I played the Fox a week ago, Saturday and three quarters of the way through the show, a guy had a heart attack. We had to stop the show because, <laughs> uh, but, but I was doing a show with Larry, the cable guy and a guy on the second row had a heart attack and you know, and they got him out and I'm standing there in the tunnel watching him pump on his chest and, uh, and, and they got him back resuscitated. And so when Larry came off stage, he, he said, uh, he said, what, what happened to that dude? I said, he's, he's all right. They got him back. And he goes, I mean, that's tragic, but <laughs> if you think about it, that's a pretty good compliment that you made somebody have a heart attack <laughs> right there. You know, I'm like, well, no, I'm just glad the dude's okay. Yeah. The story I was heard, heard is that he takes him out and you bring him in to the world. <laughs> <laughs> that's quite that's it, quite the duo there boy yeah right so um it, it's actually happened not the not the going into birth but people having heart attacks i bet it's happened a hundred times i'm not a hundred but a dozen times over my career wow it's weird yeah yeah i mean i mean i used to do a joke about me get, one of it. i used to do a bit about getting a colonoscopy and and me not, which was true. I not, I, I, I was like, let me get this over with drinking the stuff, which I was supposed to spread out over like three or four hours. Yeah. Uh, and I did the whole thing in eight minutes. And, and I said, and then my stomach started making noises, uh, kind of like the, the fireplace on the Amityville uh, horror I said, and then all of a sudden my underwear tapped me on the shoulder and said, run. And that line, I, I always knew people were going to snot themselves at that line. That line is person personally responsible for about four heart attacks. I think so. That's great, man. You, you know, like, um, how football players save the balls. Like when they throw a game winning touchdown, I wish, <laughs> I wish you could go back and save the paddles from EMS. <laughs> Just have them up on your mantle, right? Yeah. yeah. So if, if you're listening, Jeff and I are on Zoom meeting, and he has this wall of trophies and everything behind him, and that'd be great to be like, "What are what are why, why do you have an AED back there, Jeff? I've got a. Why is there four of them? What what is it? An AED? Oh, yeah. AED. The shocker, the automated external defibrillator. Somewhere in here. Look, I, I need to put this in a frame. That's the catheter they pulled out of my wiener from the last kidney stone with no anesthesia do what really that's a long catheter boat that says a lot yeah yeah and about halfway through the procedure i hear the doctor go damn it and i sat up on the table and i said i don't like to hear people cuss when they're pulling something out of my wieners what what's that all about oh, and it, man, the come off the hook, but i mean dude that thing's a foot long look at that you, i need to put you can that wear that as a necklace does it could you <laughs> you should put a charm on it <laughs> you know what and yesterday was valentine's day i missed a great opportunity oh my gosh you did miss it next year 
next year. Next year. Yeah. All right. Let me ask you this. I don't know if you're going to remember this or not, but I got a, I got a good one here. Um, I heard that your favorite snack on the road all time is Kentucky fried chicken skin wrapped in coleslaw. That's actually my, my farm manager, Glenn Garner. Don't pin that on me, but Glenn, yeah, he pulls, he pulls the skin off the thigh and, <laughs> and fills it with coleslaw, rolls it up and calls it a skin sandwich. And we, we have learned through the years that the, the combination we, I, I think, Coleslaw is his igniter, but it gives him the most horrible gas on the planet to the point. See, and that was back in the days where I was renting a plane because I'd fly home every night so I could take my kids to school. Or you go tell to the, the story about old Glenn and new Glenn. Oh, you want me to? So, uh, yeah, exactly. I do. So, so, but when you're flying on them little planes, when, when somebody farts, the, the air's always going from the back to the front and the pilots would be up there just cussing him and flying with those oxygen masks on it was awful and so they got to the point that they wouldn't buy him coleslaw anymore because and you know what it's like you don't you know you you don't want to eat before show because you feel kind of bogged down but you're always hungry afterwards well hamburgers get cold and pizza gets cold but fried chicken's good cold so so we were always eating kfc and but the pilots banned the the coleslaw because of glenn and so then one night I was doing a show in, in Nashville and it was only a 35 minute flight. So when we got up there, I think I was doing like the wild Turkey Federation or something. When we got off the plane, the pilot, John said, what do y'all want to eat? And I said, I just KFC is good. We'll just eat KFC. And, and Glenn said, John, he goes, please, can we have coleslaw tonight? And John goes, no, I ain't buying coleslaw. He goes, you've done gassed me out of that plane so many times I ain't buying it. And Glenn said, that's the old Glenn. He goes, John, the new Glenn wouldn't do stuff like that. He goes, and it's only 35 minutes. I don't have time to get in my system. So we, we go do the show, come back, get on the plane. There's a bag of KFC. We open it up. And dang it, there ain't a big old quarter coleslaw in there. Well, Glenn's happy as a clam. He, he makes him a couple of skin sandwiches, rolls them up and eats them. We fly the 35 minutes to Atlanta. Nothing happens. We land and we are taxiing to the hangar. And all of a sudden, the, the, most awful smell I've ever smelled in my life. I pulled my jacket straight up over my head and the pilots both start cussing and Glenn goes, damn you old Glenn. It was, it was the worst fart I've ever smelled in my life. In 35 minutes, he only, he not only ate it, but he got it into the system well enough to, and it, I literally, I drove home, which is about 20 minutes away. When I got there, I called the pilots from my truck to check on. He goes, dude, we can't even get back in the plane to go park it because it's still awful in there. So, and so needless to say, that was the last time we ever got coleslaw. That, that's so funny. I can only imagine, like, was it was it just like a little prop plane? I mean, I guess it doesn't matter. I mean, if it, yeah, it's like a King Air or something, but it was the the way the air circulated, it went uh, from the back to the front, you know. Oh, my gosh. And this, I heard that story yesterday from a from from mutual contact of ours. 
And I was crying on the phone. And he goes, ask Jeff about it. He's, he'll love it. <laughs> I, like, I said, I'm, I'm going to ask him tomorrow. Me, me and hell, I, one night I was doing something in Texas in the hotel we were staying at. The, the President Bush was staying there. Oh, yeah. So they had secret, secured, uh, secret service out in front checking everybody's car before we came in. And when the dogs, the drug sniffing dogs got to our car, they were just raising hell and they made us get out of the car. And popped the trunk, and it was a bucket of KFC was in the trunk. And those guys are like, you are a redneck. This ain't no joke. You're coming to a five-star hotel bringing a bucket of chicken in here with you. Oh, yeah. Look, we're not fake. This is the real deal. You're no, real hell deal. no. It's not like yeah. those rappers that smoke weed on the videos and all this stuff. And yeah. like, yeah. no, we're rolling up in here with bucket chicken. Yeah, hell yeah. I don't care how many stars your hotels got. We need chicken. That is too funny, man. I mean, the, I guess the stories could go on for hours and hours and hours. I mean, that's, that's the beauty of, um, you know, the comedy world. It's, you, you, so many funny, wonderful, memorable things. There's a lot, of, a lot of horrible things, too. A lot of things I'd like to forget out there. A lot of people that you meet sometimes that run into. But for the most part, it's all good. I want to ask yeah. you just to sit, like put it in perspective for people. Um, Cause I get asked this and I'm honestly, I'm no Jeff Foxworthy, but I played some, some decent sized venues. Uh, the biggest one I got to play with Ingvall. We did um, West point military Academy in New York. And I think it was a 3000 or 3,500 seater. And I've done a few others a little bit smaller than that. And when people ask like, what's it like, it's hard to explain. You've done Boston Garden, right? And yeah, I think I did Boston Gardens. I mean, I've done. Well, you forgot. I did a country <laughs> music festival um, in 1996. There were 250,000 people. It was Atlanta Motor Speedway. So it was a quarter, quarter of a million people. Then let me ask you that, was, that freaked me out. That was like Woodstock. That was people as far as you could see. Then that's phenomenal. Perfect. Because I wanted to know from your perspective, because I know when I played just those bigger theaters, just the, the three experiences that I have doing that, the laughter, I try to explain it. It comes in waves. Does it not? Yes. Okay. Yes. So when you're working a small venue, hundred, 200 people, and we're jam packed in there, the laughter's all at once. It's one big eruption and your timing is boom, boom, boom. But what I, what I've, learned and i've heard this in the past from other comics when you play the big theaters you got to hold up you got to learn how to pause because there's laughter from way in the back are coming mm -hmm. and can you explain what that's like from the the stage that you've been on because i wouldn't have no clue about that yeah i mean you learn to listen you know um you're not just talking, you're listening and you're trying to find the pace of that room. That's that's like I said, the Fox Theater, even though it was made in like the 30s it's something about the acoustics in there it, it's just like water so the laughter from the audience is just it's rolling down there to you and so and you know like you don't want the laugh to totally die out before you move on to the next thing you know i want it to peak and i want it to be coming down and then go into the next thing and so it's never stops you know and so yeah you learn to listen listen to the room you know and 
it's weird. Like amphitheaters are weird because it's outdoors. So it doesn't roll to you as much. Do you feel connected with the audience though? Like you do in a smaller venue? Do you still feel that connection because the crowd's so big? Like, I'm asking them because I'm curious. In a in a theater, I do, but like in a you know, when we were doing blue collar, we were doing arenas. I mean, we were doing like twenty thousand people a show, and that was too big. You know, the the weird thing because you had to have these giant screens, and there'd be somebody on the tenth row, ten rows in front of you that's not even looking at you. They're watching the screen because it's a close up of your face. And wow. That, you know, that was weird. Even so though there's the, a disconnect there, there is a disconnect. And so, you know, for, for me to this day, anytime I'm, I'm working on new stuff and, and trying to figure out what's funny and what's not, I still go back to those little bitty clubs and I don't even want to go on a Saturday night. Cause I think Saturday night audiences are, are more apt to laugh at everything. I want to go on a Tuesday night when there's 30 people there. Because I know they're going to be honest. That's right. I'll get I'll get an honest reaction. Is this funny or is this not funny? And so, you know, even to this day, and you with that, that's kind of one of the things about comedy that amazes me is if you're if you laid carpet for 30 years, you would know what works and what doesn't work. You would know here's how I do a corner, here's how I do stairs, here's how I, you know, you you would. But with comedy, you never get to the point where you know what they're going to laugh at, you know, so you and I could be walking in and when I'm trying stuff, I always have it on note cards and I could have a stack of note cards. And if you said to me, pick the four that are going to get the biggest laugh tonight, after 37 years of doing it, I'd be dead wrong on two of them. Wow. So it's never a given. That's it's, so it's kind of like the woman, the kind of like the, the woman you can't ever figure out. That's what makes her interesting. All of them. Um, but I always assume the crowd is right. They'll tell you they'll they'll tell you what's funny and what's not. It, it, but sometimes I'm wrong because sometimes I'm like, really, that's not funny. And other times I'll, I'll say something that I think, well, this is just stupid. And I'll say it and people will be beating the table. And you're like, oh, wow, really? Um, so. I, I, that's the thing that's always fascinated me about comedy is you don't ever know what they're going to laugh at. I've just always wondered what that was like walking out on those big stages. Like, like you guys had the pleasure of doing because with a rock band, you don't necessarily have to watch the band. You can stand, you could close your eyes and listen and be in tune with that band. But with comedy, it's a very engaging art form. And with a rock band, it doesn't even have to, the sound can be off a little bit where yeah. you don't understand exactly what they say, but that, that's okay. not the case with comedy. You've got to listen and you've got to understand, you know, cause you know, when you're working a small venue, you could have a hundred people. We as comedians, you're going to see the one person that's not watching you. And all of a sudden you're not focused on the 99 who are having a great time. Somehow we find this vision and we, 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 we like laser focus on the one person that's not looking and we're in our mind, we're like, why aren't they paying attention? What are they doing? What's more important right now? So I couldn't imagine having these screens up and there's thousands of people watching a screen. Yeah. Yeah. They're not even necessarily dialed into you, but you know, so it was a blessing and a curse. I mean, it was such a blessing that that many people wanted to see the blue collar comedy tour, but it was, if, if I had to pick a show that I was doing, for me to have fun, it wouldn't be an arena. 
it would be a small theater somewhere. That's know? great. Um, that's a different perspective that, you know, I wanted to get out of you and see kind of what you would say about that. So people listening could hear that. That's well, and, and here's, here's something else. Cause I was thinking about with what you and I do for a living, it's a weird job, but I thought, how does it relate to what you're doing on this podcast? Um, and I, w- I was sitting there thinking about that this morning. And, and, and several years ago, I was doing an interview. And the lady that was interviewing me, she said, she said, okay, you do stand up, you do voiceovers for movies, you host game shows, you write books, you paint, you invent games. She said, which one are you? And I went, oh, wow, that's a weird question. And I said, I said, well, all of those are things that I do. And I said, and I love what I do. And I love the fact that I get to do a lot of different things because creatively it's always interesting and engaging because you're, you know, you're doing a lot of different things. I said, but those are, those are things that I do. I said, who I am is I'm a daddy and I'm a husband and I'm a brother and I'm a son and I'm a child of God and I'm a person of this community. So over the course of my life, what I do is going to change many, many times, but hopefully who I am stays consistent no matter what I'm doing. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a hundred, I mean, a hundred percent because I tell people all the time, never let what you do define you as a human being, because you're more than just that. And when I teach these merch services personnel, they go, sometimes they'll, they'll, their career will be ended short or they'll, sure. um, they'll have, they'll get terminated under uh, unfortunate circumstances that, and it sends them down this dark hole. And I teach this in my class, post-traumatic purpose. And I, and I, and I tell them all the time, look, this career does not define you. You do this job and you do very good at it, but do not let it define you because you're, you're capable of so much more than just what you do for a living, what you do to earn your yes. paycheck. Yeah. And, so and, I get and, and I think men are especially vulnerable to that. Like when you think about when you ask little kids, Hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm-hmm. It's, it's perfectly okay for a little girl to say, I want to be a mom, but a guy's going to say, I want to be a policeman or I want to be a, a soldier. I want to be a f- football player. Right. You never hear a little boy say, I want to be a dad. Yeah. I just want to be a dad. Mm-hmm. I want to be a dad. I want to be a really good dad. And <clears throat> so I think as guys, it's very easy to tie our identity into what we do. Um, and like I said, over COVID, you know, that was hard for me because this was what I had done for over three and a half decades. And, and it took going to talk to somebody that's, that said, yeah, this is what you do, but, Listen to your own words. This isn't who you are. If this goes away, Jeff's still there. That's right. You know, the, the Jeff that cares about his kids. And so what, what I would tell people is, you know, because my dad left when I was young, it would it was really important for me, for my kids to understand that they were the priority to me, which was why. I would always pay for an airplane to fly me home at night so I could be there to take them to school or be there to go to their soccer game or 
you know, basketball game or, or whatever. It was giving me a hundred extra days a, a year with my kids. I just had a job that took me away, but when they grew up, I wanted them to know you're my priority. Even if I have to go without sleep and spend extra money, I want you to understand what I do is not more important to me than, than what you mean to me and how much I love you. And, and, and so I think with your audience, you know, they don't get tied into what you do or what you have done. It's, Cause that's different than who you are. They're not the same thing. And, and, and so I will tell people, I'm like, sit down and write out the, the write out your list of priorities. What's the most important thing to you? Um, you know, f- from the way you and I grew up, it, it certainly wasn't money for me. I mean, I did, nothing in my life prepared me to have money. I was never money motivated. Um, I wanted to have enough to be comfortable, but hell, I grew up with a dirt yard. I thought having grass was, you know, having made it. Um, did you have to sweep your yard? Did you, did you grow up in that raked era? It, raked it. Okay. So we my dad grew up, you know, rabbit, my dad, he, he grew up where they would go out with a broom and sweep the dirt because they wanted it as my, my grandfather, DC just wanted it hard, nice dirt. So they didn't yeah. rake, they would take brooms and sweep it. Broom straw. We, we did. We would rake it. So it looked nice. Like you had manicured. It. Oh, you put you the know? lines in it. Yeah. Put the lines in. Oh, I was good. You I walked this way and I walked this way. I could back all the way up and get them lines going the whole way. It's like, a, it was like a miniature version of a plowed field, you know? Yeah. And our de- in our in our uh, landscaping was we had concrete blocks on the side of the driveway that, and we put monkey grass in the in the holes. So we had monkey grass coming out of the concrete blocks. That was the landscape. You ever see those flower pots they make out of tires? They flip them inside out oh, and then God, they trim yeah, the top of them. Have those, dude? Yes, sir. And my grandmother. So their their home security was they had these yucca plants. Uh, kind of like a palmetto bush underneath their the windows, they they'd stick you. So that yeah, was yeah. the home security. You ain't coming to these my, windows. Then my grandmother wanted to get well, it, and you had to have something because we didn't have air conditioning. So you know you had the window up to let the wind in. And um, so my grandmother, to make them pretty, took those styrofoam egg cartons and she <laughs> she'd buy them in pink and yellow, and, yeah. and she'd cut them into individual squares, and we'd stick them on top of the stickers, and they kind of look like flowers, you know. That's that so, high-end decorations folks wouldn't know nothing about. No. So, you know, Jeff, where do you come up with these redneck jokes? It's like, mm, on, let me tell right you, here. my dad has a bass in his shed. It's like a nine-pound bass. It's this trophy, or it's a 10. It's a big boy but it's hanging up in his shed. So I grew up in a trailer. All right. And both of my parents smoked cigarettes, Marlboro reds when I was little, but you know, they wouldn't smoke with the doors open. You got to close everything up tight when you smoke cigarettes back then. Sure. And the belly of this fish now is nicotine yellow. And I, I got to get my dad to send me a picture. I'll send it to you. It is the funniest thing. And I'm like, dad, you realize that was going in our lungs. He's like, come on, man. We, We didn't know any better back then. Oh God! Yeah, you'd be in the car. They'd be driving you. You know, with yeah. the window oh, yeah. rolled up. Uh, yeah. Other kids thought I smoked in elementary school. They're like, "You've been smoking cigarettes?" I'm like, "No, my clothes just smell like cigarettes." Just but uh, oh, yeah. I remember I, my granddaddy's my granddaddy's jacket. 
had a smell to it. And I didn't realize till I was grown that that's what it was. It was Lucky Strike. But I mean, it was it was camel cigarettes is what it was called. You know what it was. I told my dad at his estate sale, I'm going to sell that bass as an exotic fish. <laughs> <laughs> hey, your granddaddy was a firefighter, wasn't he? He was a firefighter. Yeah. Did you hang out at the fire stations? That's the fire station was actually between my school and my house. Really? And, and so every day that he was working on my way home from school, I'd stop in and see my granddaddy. He did That's a- where I learned to play ping pong was the back of the fire station. Really? There. Yeah. And he did 30 but, years, didn't he? Yeah. They had that. I mean, and they, you know, Hateville was, was kind of a small town, but uh, it was, kind of on the outskirts of Atlanta, but then like when I was little, there was uh or it might've even been before I was born, there was a hotel fire in downtown Atlanta that they had to cover that. Uh, I didn't know it till years later. Uh, and he had, a, he pulled a bunch of dead folks out of there. People that had climbed in the bathtub and filled it with water. And, you know, he, he never talked about it much, but you know, he, he did tell me, he said, I went in to pull this lady out of the tub and she had boiled and her, and her arm just came off. And in, in another time he had found a, he'd found a, a missing child that would, was inside a refrigerator, was playing hide and go seek and it hid in an, an old refrigerator and was dead. And, and, you know, it's, it, which is probably, um, what a lot of people that listen to you deal with And I've always said to my wife, I said, you can't, you can't be traumatized, but so much or be scared, but so much till you get to the point where your brain, it, it, it puts stuff in a, Mm -hmm. goes down to the basement, puts it in a room and locks the door and goes, yeah. I, I can't go to that. Place. I can't think about this. Yeah. You know? We and, talk about that a lot on this, on this podcast on a lot about trauma. Um, but you know, I didn't bring up your grandfather to do that, but since you, you brought that up, I wanted to ask you, was it like, did you ever notice signs of him? Like, did, I don't, you don't have to get into it too deep if you don't want, but like um, my grandfather, uh, both of them were in world war two and uh, one was in Europe and one fought in the South Pacific. One was okay when he came home, even though he was shot all up. The other one was completely just, he just wasn't right. He drank. He was very distant from his family. He was a, he was a very uh, off-putting man at, at times because of what he experienced. Did you ever notice any of those things at your grandfather? No, I mean, it was a, it was a different age. Like he never talked about it. Right. Um, he was, you know, he was of that generation. It's like he didn't, he wasn't one to, to say, I love you, you know, yeah. but I knew he loved me. I mean, cause he, he took me fishing with, it. He, 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 when he wasn't at the fire station, he was fishing and he'd always take me fishing with him. And cause I lived with him for a long time after my dad left and, uh, so the, the best thing I ever wrote in my life, I wrote a story one time uh, from the perspective of being 10 years old. And, uh, and, and it was about him taking me fishing. And the story began, he's waking me up. It's dark outside and he's waking me up. I can hear him in the kitchen putting, you know, the sandwiches in the cooler. And, the, and, 
and it was about an eight-page story, but it was, and it went through the whole. I knew what he was going to say when we were loading the truck. I knew what he was going to do when we drove, and uh, and I and so it's about eight pages. But when I finished it, I said, "This is the best thing I've ever written," and I mailed it to my granddaddy, and I never heard anything more. And I asked my mom, I said, "Did Granny get that story that I sent him?" And, yeah, I think he did. You know, and I mean that was that, and uh, and then he died when he's about 85 years old and we were, we were leaving the graveside and this lady came walking up. I thought she was going to ask for a picture or something. And, and she said, I hate to bother you. She said, but I lived across the street from your granddaddy. She said, and I'd, I'd stop in and check on him a couple of times a week. And she said, do you know, every time I'd stop and check on him because it towards the end of his life, he couldn't see hardly at all. She said, He'd asked me to read some story you had written about him taking you fishing. She said, I bet I read him that story a hundred times. Really? Dude, I just started sobbing. Oh you know? man. Um, so he wasn't a man of 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 you know, never mentioned it to me, never said anything. But that was that was that generation. And 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 what I, you know, it's interesting because I I I, I never was in the service, but Right before COVID hit, I spent 12 years. I'd go downtown to Atlanta, and I, I would do a small group Bible study with homeless guys. It started with uh, me and 12 guys, and over the years, it ended up having like 20 group leaders and about 300 guys every week. Wow. But, and, and, cause I, and it was funny. I'd always done tons of stuff with kids with cancer, and I'd never done anything with homeless people. And I had a guy – that worked down there invited me to lunch one day. And I went down there and the, the first guy I met down there was, uh, he's like a 21 year old white kid in downtown Atlanta in a homeless shelter. Now my first thought is get a job, dude. What the hell? You know, you're young, you're healthy. And, but I like to know people's stories. And I, so he sat down at our table and I said, Jason, what's your story? Why the heck are you in a homeless shelter? And he said, well, he said, it was me, my brother, my mom, and my dad. And he said, when I was 11, he said, my mom killed herself one day. Hmm. He said, and then two years after that, my brother killed himself. And it was me and my dad in my second year of college, my dad killed himself. And he said, I just got to the point I couldn't hurt anymore. So I started smoking crack and I'm sitting there, Trav, and I'm like, hell, I would have started smoking crack too, you know? And so what, what I ended up finding out about almost everybody that's homeless was something bad happened to them at some point in their life. They were sexually assaulted by a relative. They were abandoned. I had one guy that his his mom had it one day. He was five. His little sister was three. And she took him to the Kentucky Fried Chicken and walked him in. And she walked back out and got in the car and drove off. And they never saw her again. Really? And, and so what happens is people get so traumatized and there's a hurt that they can't deal with. So they start numbing it, you know, either with alcohol or drugs, because you you just don't want to feel that way. Well, when you numb, you're not employable. You're not reliable. 
And so you can't work that therefore you can't pay rent. Your family gets tired of giving you money or you stealing crap from them. And they finally quit having anything to do with it. And that's how you end up homeless. And so what we learned over the years was if you could ever get somebody to take that hurt, go down to the basement, let's open that door, pull it up, pull it up the stairs, drag it out in the front yard and just, here it is. Here it is. Here's, here's what happened to me. Yeah. They had a shot at being okay, you know? And, and, and so like every year when I would start a, a, a new year with a new group of guys, I'd always start on Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. Cause it was the one son that went away and did everything bad. And the one that stayed home and did everything good, but kind of the, the, the gist of the whole story was, that you had a father that you couldn't do anything bad enough where he would love you any less. And you couldn't do anything good enough where he would love you anymore. He just loved you with everything he had, regardless of your performance. And, and I found over the years, that's, that's what all of us are looking for is we just want to be loved. We just want to be accepted. We want to be included. And and when people go through trauma like that, they think nobody else is going to understand, but the comic in me goes, man, you're not alone in, 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 in doing this. And the guy that worked at the mission goes, you're not alone in doing this. Uh, yeah. It's, it's sad, you know, and I used to see a lot of that homelessness when I was a police officer and a lot of these, um, you know, other police officers do, we, you'd see the encampments behind the grocery stores and they, they, they'd set up their camps there because the grocery stores would come out and give food away and, then they had to stop giving food away because of lawsuits, you know, it's just sad, but, um, you know, I always tell people, I hear people beating themselves up about a bad day that they had. And, and, and it's easy to get into the victim mindset. And I tell people all this, as soon as you notice you're doing that, you have to stop because it's, it's contagious and it's infectious. It'll spread through your body like cancer. And what I mean is anytime something bad is happening to me, I stop and I think about what you just talked about. There's always somebody having a much worse day than you are. Well, there, you know, there is. And, and I heard a friend of mine one time said, comparison is the death of contentment. It's like when we start comparing, Oh, he's got this or she's got that. And I don't, but go read some statistics on worldwide poverty. Do you know that, that if you own a car, any kind of car, the biggest clunker in the world, you're in the top, 5% 5% of people in the world. Really? Only I didn't five, know that. Only 5% of the people in the world own a car. Are you serious? Go, go Google how many people will never take a hot shower one time in their entire life. G- you know. Bo, I've go, made it. Now, I, Now you know what I mean? That's and it. So, <laughs> so what I try to do, because it is our mindset, is, is I tell myself, when I get up in the morning, I'm like, put on the slippers of gratitude, be grateful. I had a, I had a roof over my head. I had a bed to sleep in. Mm. I, I'm, I'm about to take a shower, which billions of people will never do in their life. Wow. You know, no matter if I'm eating leftovers from last night, if this may be the best meal, somebody else it's somewhere else would ever eat one time in their life. And so yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, no, most no matter no matter how good you have it, somebody would gladly trade their position to have what you have. 
You know, I try to tell people that all the time. Yes. Or yeah. Well, and it goes the opposite way. Like I, I remember being in church one day and, and the, and the preacher said, how many people here are rich now? And I'm living on the North side of Atlanta and not one person raised their hand, but it's the same thing. Cause the guy that's making a million dollars a year looks at the guy sitting across the road, that's making 5 million a year. And he goes, hell, I ain't rich. That dude's rich. And the guy that's making fives looking at the guy that's making 20 going, I'm not rich. He's rich. That's right. Well, it's, it's the same thing on both ends of it. And so, but if you think about it, it's that, it's that being content with what you've got uh, and being grateful for what you've got, you know, and like for 20 years, my wife and I were the head fundraisers for the Duke Children's Hospital. And, and man, I realized I, I better start saying a thank you every night that my kids are healthy because there's a, there's a kid in there in the bone marrow unit that just woke up one morning with a sore throat. He didn't do anything wrong. That's right. You know, and he, he's got some kind of cancer that, that they can't cure. Yeah, it's uh, it, it goes back to that. A lot of people focus on what they don't have versus what they do have. Yeah, and, yeah. It's, and it and it's not. I mean, trauma's trauma. Trauma screws us all up, you know. And and like nothing in my life prepared me to be famous, but but I'm still a guy. I worry about my grandson when he's sick. I worry about my kids when they're not home. I mean. I'm still just a person, you know, it's, you know, I still drive down and take groceries to my mom because she's 85 years old and can't walk good. And, and so we're so much more alike than we are different. And so, right. you know, these people that are, that are struggling with them, I mean, Hey, God bless you that you got the courage to stand in the gap, man. Uh, that's, that's a calling. That's a gift. No different than, you know, some people have a gift taking care of old people. Some people have a gift making people laugh. Some people have a gift training horses. Well, being able to be a, a, a first responder or a soldier or whatever, that's, that's a gift. And it, it's a heavy, it's a, it's a gift that, that has burdens to it. But good night, where would we be without you? And, and so, you know, my encouragement would be, don't lock it away in the basement. Share it. Share it. That's right. Because when you pull it out in the light and call it what it is, it, it, it can't hurt you anymore. You know? And it, it, it was funny. Like, I would see with those homeless guys. I mean, it'd be, you know, you wouldn't see it coming. You'd be talking about something. And some guy would just start crying. He goes, listen, when I was... When I was nine, my uncle took me to, you know, to the shed behind the garage and raped me. And that went on for the next four years. And, you know, you'd start crying. And then somebody else in the circle would raise their hands and go, that happened to me, too. Well, now that it's out in the open, you realize that's not your fault. You didn't ask for that. You didn't do something wrong. You were a victim of that. You You were you were a victim. And so you deserve empathy and you deserve protection, but that's not on you. Uh, you know, it's, and, and man, people that are first responders, you see bad, bad crap, it, it, but 
Yeah, it'll jade you. It'll certainly jade you. And that's what I try to, you know, my whole, you know, mission and, and, and voice is about like, try not, it's going to do what it's going to do, but you have to realize it and you have to work on it and don't, don't get forced into the box that it tries to that ultimately put you in. You know, we, when we go to the first responder community, when we, when we start that profession, nobody goes in there thinking, oh man, 30 years from now, I'm going to be all screwed up from everything I see. Nobody even thinks that way, but that's the reality of it. You will be different. Um, two to three years into this job, it will change you. And we're not ready for that change. We, we don't educate ourselves on that change. And that's, you know, that's why I do what I do to try to get out there and, and, and get amongst these people and start the conversation. Cause you said something that I, I hadn't heard before and I liked it. And it was, uh, you said, once you, once you put it out there in the light, it, it can't hurt you. And essentially that that's exactly right. hundred percent. Because when you bury all these things that are going on in your life, it's just inner turmoil eating you up. And, and, and it's one bad decision after another. But once it's out there, once you share it, it can't hurt you anymore. And that's beautiful. Well, yeah. And, and, and I think you're going to find in, instead of other people judging you or, or, or whatever, I think you're going to find other people are real sympathetic and empathetic yeah. to to, to what you've had to deal with. You know, I know one of my best friends was a, a deputy sheriff for hell a decade. And man, some of the things he saw on the interstate with wrecks and things and walking over and, you know, it, it can't help but mess with you. You see dead kids and, you know, people with their torso cut in half or people missing a head. And, but he, he learned over time, I, if I just lock this inside, I'm going to implode. Yeah, that's right. So, so he learned, hey, I need to talk about some of this stuff. Because um, we do it. And, and I've always thought that about laughter. I guess that's why I like what I do is, and, 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 and Trav, every night before I go out, I try to remember myself before I walk on stage. I try to remind myself, everybody I'm looking at is going through some kind of a struggle. It might be financial. It might be emotional. It might be physical. But everybody's going through some kind of a struggle. Just some people hide it much better than others. Right. And, and so that's kind of my whole life. I learned this from my mom. It's like, have grace with people. You don't know what they're dealing with. So just be kind to them. You don't know. And, and I don't think laughter makes people's struggles go away, but I do think laughter is like the release valve that keeps the boiler from exploding. You can make them forget about it for a time. Yeah. You just, just for a minute, just, you know, take that release valve and let the pressure off the pressure cooker. Yeah. Then you kind of take a deep breath and reset and like, all right, we'll go deal with it again. And so, you know, that's, and I learned that from, from walking in kids hospital rooms that didn't know I was coming. It was a surprise visit and I'd get in there and I'd see one of my DVDs or a blue collar record or a book I had written. And you're thinking, Oh my gosh, this is somebody's release from this dealing with this crapping monster of cancer. Yeah. And I didn't even think about that, you know? So yeah, golly, we got to laugh. We got, we got to laugh at ourselves because we're all, we're all idiots. We all, we are, man. No, nobody's got it figured out, but I want to tell you if you, while you're speaking, I can hear this thing beeping. I don't know if you can hear it or not, but the last time you and I were texting, um, a couple of times ago, 
I took my dad out to a fancy dinner when we were sitting there and uh, I was at Cracker Barrel and uh, we were having that grits and the uncle, uncle Herschel's breakfast. Uncle dad, Herschel is the great. Oh my God. I love it. But remember I text you that picture when I rented that excavator, that big excavator and you mm-hmm. go, Bo, I couldn't even get in that. I have to do a mini X, but you were telling me, I said, man, I got a pile out here. I don't know what to do with it. you go get bulldozer. Yeah. So it's, it's ironic. We're on today and the bulldozer comes in today. Oh, that's beautiful. And it's been two months when he finally comes. Cause I was going to rent a bulldozer, but the, the rental place was full. So I had this other guy and he finally, he's like, Hey man, I'm right down the road with my low boy and my 135 horsepower bulldozer. And I was like, come on, open the gate. Yeah. <laughs> he's out there. Oh my God. I, I used to say, instead of guys, when they have their midlife crisis, instead of you know, going and buying a red convertible and getting a girlfriend, just go get a tractor or a bulldozer. And that's, it's so much mentally better for you. You know, be careful now. These people that live in HOA neighborhoods going to be showing up with these John Deere tractors and everything. <laughs> Can I get you flying? Jeff Foxworthy said, I should go buy this. <laughs> but you ain't lying. It's nothing better. There's nothing better than getting out there oh, and just okay. driving around and doing stuff that doesn't even need to be done. I'll actually make a bigger mess than what I had, and I'm, but it was fun. Do you know, uh, I did a, I did a thing <coughs> in Nashville a couple of weeks ago, uh, for Dan Cathy, who was, uh, stepping down as the president of Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A started in my hometown. So I've always been related to that family, but Garth Brooks was there. Uh, was it? and I saw Garth and, uh, I told Garth, I said, Hey, I said, I saw Tricia a year or so ago at a thing. And she was telling me on your farm that y'all got a trophy that y'all have just beaten the snot out of and you give it to whoever tore up a piece of equipment last. And he started laughing. He goes, yeah, it's the knothead award. He said, and I have it about 80% of the time. And, and I thought, so here's Garth Brooks, who everybody thinks of this giant superstore star. And what's he doing? He's out on his farm That's it. tearing something up, you know, but I love the fact that he's out there doing that. He's on a tractor or a bulldozer or something. Tearing That's something right. up. My daddy blew two hydraulic lines on my tractor one day. He hit a stump and it, and it caught both of them perfectly, ripped them out. And this spray and we shut it down and you could tell it bothered him. He was upset. And he's like, man, I'm sorry. And I said, dad, don't worry about it. I go, look at what we're doing. We got sunshine. Yeah. We're, we're in a position where we're capable to go out and buy the parts, put it back together. I was like, let's just enjoy it. He's like, all right, Bo, let's, let's do it. I've ripped the hydraulic lines off the tractor so many times it ain't funny. I mean, uh, if, if you ain't doing that yet, are you, do you really operate a tractor? I mean, probably not. Probably but, not. You know what you should have done when you were talking to Garth? Huh? You should have done when you were talking to Garth? What? You should have pulled out that catheter necklace with that rabbit's foot on it. <laughs> <laughs> now, I think I'm going to give it to my wife. I'm going to find uh, I'm, I'll put one of my little airheads I found on the end of that and just let her wear it like a choker or something. Oh my gosh. That'd be hilarious. Who said romance is dead. Liven it up with a catheter and some catheter and some arrowheads. Yeah. Why Last of the Mohicans. It's great. Well, my bulldozer man's walking off. He just came. He's waving me in the window. I said, look, I got a, I got a thing I'm going to be doing inside from one to two. I said, so. All right. He's just over there waving me. He's oh crap. I kept, I stayed too long. You <clears throat> no, man, I can do this all day. I got nothing to do. This is, this is the only thing on my schedule. And I have a pine tree out here that I like to go sit under and watch the, uh, watch the horses and the donkeys eat. That literally is all I do. I could see that. Yeah. yeah. You I don't have see. animals on your farm. Uh, or do you, I, I have 
we don't raise cows or anything. We, we are blessed to have just naturally really big deer there. And okay. I'm at, and I'm an avid bow hunter. And yeah. so, uh, yeah, but, but, but the cool thing is like, we, we have to take about 120 deer a year off of it just to keep the numbers even, but, yeah, okay. but I've got a couple of programs that every single one of them gets eaten by somebody. So, uh, good. um, uh, that's, that's, that's my escape is, uh, but, but, but I'm drawn to stuff like this. Cause I, you know, I've always had a heart for people, always had a heart for the underdog, for the people that were were struggling because you know that was me that that was i remember one time we we had a, our little hometown had a good little baseball team but nobody had any money we had horrible uniforms and i remember one time getting off of a getting off of a bus we went to the north side of atlanta to play somebody and they were making fun of us when we got off the bus because <laughs> of how crappy our uniforms were and I remember thinking at the time, I'm like, dude, you don't know nothing about me. All you know is the quality of my shirt. That's right. And, and then, you know, when I became successful and famous and then people think, oh, well, it, it, and so now I, it, now I got a nice shirt and people think they know you. And I'm like, no, you don't know nothing about me. Same guy, just a different shirt, you yeah. know, so different shirt. That's right. Um. My buddy told me, he goes, Travis, you could never be like super, super famous. He goes, because all you would do is sit on your farm and sit out in the woods. I was like, what's wrong with that? What do you think I do? If I ain't working, that's where I'm at. I you know. know. You said, uh, so when COVID happened, didn't you spend a lot of your time out there? I spent my whole time out there. Just, oh, yeah. Just, I'm just, just on the farm. Just That's great. Me and my wife and my girls, you know. It's and, hard to leave it, isn't it? It is hard to leave it. I, every time I drive through the gate to leave, I get sad. I'm like, crap. I, I pulled go. out of here the other day, but I had to go to, um, where was I? It's uh, St. Augustine, Florida. And I was doing an event for 350 fire cadets. These youngsters, they want to be firefighters when they grow up. And they, they wanted me to come up and do a keynote presentation for the Florida winter fire games. And I had this wonderful hotel at, in the Renaissance is one of the nice, nice hotels. And I got there, I did my thing and I go, man, it's the middle of the night. I was like, I just want to go back and wake up on my farm tomorrow. I don't yeah. want to wake up in the Renaissance. I want to wake up out there. I get it. And that's I what I did. It. My my wife laughs at me because I will, <clears throat> when I'm at the farm, I'll walk past the bathroom to go pee off the porch. I'm just like, yeah, there ain't nothing better than peeing off the porch. We got, we got to wrap around on here and I hose everything down here. Bro. Yes, absolutely. I, I want every flower to be dead on the side of the porch. But, That's you right. know. And she's like, and- she goes, you just walk past the bathroom. <laughs> I'm like, I, I know, but it ain't the same thing. You don't know what it's like if how free it feels. Oh my God. It's the best. Oh, I don't know boy. how we ended on anything other than that, Jeff. I think you. That's probably <laughs> That's, I mean, that's, <laughs> you've been in business long enough. You know, when, you know, when it's time to walk off, yeah, it's time. It's time. Well, I want to keep you on for a second, tell you something in a second, but, uh, Jeff, I can't thank you enough for coming on. It, it means the world to me that you, uh, set some time aside in your day. And then I know everybody that supports my podcast is really going to get a kick out of this and, and find some knowledge in it as well. Well, and, and I'm being genuine. I, I want to thank them for what they do. It, it, it ain't easy 
but man, is it necessary? And, and there's a heavy price that goes with it. Uh, it's, it's a heavy, it's a heavy rock to carry. And there's no shame in letting somebody take one side of that rock every once in a while and, and, and give, love yourself enough to give yourself some relief. Um, yeah, that's solid stuff, buddy. Appreciate it, man. And wishing you nothing but the best as always. You too. All right. We'll yeah. talk soon. Yeah, we will. All, All right, right, brother. Be All right. Safe. All right. See you.